So the 13th chapter, uh, this is the last one, what he does is he just gives a, a collection of commands. It's sort of like if you want to call it the Ten Commandments of the book of Hebrews. The first 12 chapters are theology, and the last chapter is just a one verse commands all the way through the whole chapter. The Apostle Paul does that same thing, but he usually takes more than one chapter. The book of Ephesians, first three chapters are theology, the last three chapters are commands. Romans, the first 12 chapters are theology, the last four chapters are commands. Uh, and often they're unrelated, they're just like uh, a list of them. So it's always interesting when you think of someone like the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, as a pastor probably, and as he, gets, uh, as he collects what he wants them to do, um, thinking of why did he pick these particular commands? Why were they important to him? And so they evidently were. And uh, so he could have picked any number of ones. That he, if you collect all of them in the New Testament, there's over 100. Uh, but in this book, uh, this last chapter, there's a dozen. And so we'll go through them. And, it's, and it's, I'm going to do the whole thing tonight, so I'm going to go fairly fast. And uh, we'll probably take the whole hour in order to get it done. So number, I'll read through the whole chapter first. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. These would be those that have been arrested for their faith. Uh, by Nero, probably many of them, if not all of them, were martyred like Paul. Uh, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and concerning the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Probably this teaching included dietary regulations, and so it was probably a, a form of Judaism because that was part of the problem. And so a key part of that was foods that are clean and unclean. And so he's basically saying um, food's not that big a deal. We're strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Probably, as he wrote this, he was in prison, 
And so he's saying, pray for me that I might be restored to you. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, this is a prayer that he prays for the people. Now the God of peace who brought you, uh, brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to, him be, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom if he comes soon I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. That is the end of the book of Hebrews. So we'll start and go through these commands one at a time. Number one in your notes, love your Christian brothers and sisters who are part of JBC. Love your Christian brothers and sisters who are part of JBC. That's his first command. He says it in verse 1, let love of the brethren continue. And brethren are probably those that are part of the church that he's writing to, that he's the pastor of. And so, I say, I love you. I should say it here. And uh, the um, communication that I regularly give to you is that uh, that's a commitment of things that I will do. And so, just a quick sort of description of what he's saying to the church. Love one another. Uh, First, most basic thing about love is forgiving anybody of anything, no matter how bad the offense or how often they do it. And so when you look at the description definition of love in the New Testament, it is repeated all through uh, the New Testament. Uh, Jesus describes it. The Apostle Paul describes it. Peter describes it. The writer of the Hebrews describes it. Uh, And so as you study the topic of love, the foundational principle is forgive. God loved us so much. He gave his only begotten son so that we might be forgiven. And so forgiveness of sin is is the foundation, the essence of what love's about. And so if I love you, I will forgive you of anything. If you love me, you will forgive me of anything. And uh, so if we do that and do it quickly, then it eliminates the problem of uh, conflict in our relationship. Second is pray for the, uh, our, each other's problems and needs. Pray for you as I see needs in your life. You pray for me, we pray for one another. And so the basic principle in the Word of God is that I have way more influence with God for you than I do for myself. And so as you read the New Testament, uh, you um, in the epistles, the only prayer you'll find uh, that is that Paul prays for himself is the one about the thorn in the flesh, and God doesn't answer it. All the other prayers that he, that are recorded are all for others, and it's a a basic law of God so that he draws us together in interdependence. So I need you to pray for me. You need me to pray for you. And our prayers for each other are considerably more powerful than our prayers for ourselves. And uh, do what you can to meet pressing needs in their life. And so obviously, again, uh, especially as you look at the, the, the topic of love from Jesus' perspective and in Proverbs, uh, he who says he loves his brother but doesn't meet his needs is just deceiving himself. Encourage those who are struggling. Encouragement is the most often given one another command in the New Testament, and it's a 
It's an assumption on, uh, when I say I love you, that I will encourage you, be at peace with everyone. So peace is more than simply the absence of conflict. It's proactive uh, in the sense of unity, oneness, uh, striving together, being of one mind and one heart. Don't gossip or slander anyone, never, ever. That is one of the most unloving acts that we can do is to damning someone's character by things that we say to them, uh, say about them to others. And then treat everyone with honor, be gracious, pleasant in conversations. I was talking with a parent this last week, and they said of the goals and the character traits that you pursued with your kids and teaching them, which one do you at this point see as being the most important especially as you see your grandchildren and see other people's kids. And I said, uh, the, the one that would be most important is teaching your kids to honor uh, people, uh, that they would l- be gracious and pleasant in their conversation, that you would eliminate words that are hurtful, that are mean. And that's become our culture. And, uh, and so well, the cool thing about that as a parent, you can tell by listening to your kids how you're doing. But uh, I'm, I'm around kids a lot, mine and others in the church, and I hear conversations that they have. And uh, kids quickly uh, become uh, mean-spirited, insulting uh, to each other in their conversation. And so I would, I would really, really work on that if I started over today with kids on training them. That would be a major one that I would work on because the blessings in Scripture for people who are uh, self-controlled in their speech to others who only speak words that edify and that give grace and never unwholesome words. The blessings, the power that comes to them from God is great. And the fact that they are then used by him. God doesn't use just anybody. He uses those who are worthy to be used. And a major one is that our speech is pleasant and gracious and kind. Number two, our practical and observable love and unity is the most powerful form of evangelism that we have as a church body. And so everything that we have as a discipline, our Bible reading, we do it privately and we also do it corporately. Privately is when we sit down and read the Bible. Corporately is when we come and we get taught God's word uh, like now or in weekend services. Uh, We thank the Lord always for everything and that we also gather together and we sing and we worship him corporately. We pray privately and we pray corporately. In evangelism, when we talk about go do evangelism, most of us would see that as a solo sport, as it were, a responsibility that I would do, that you would do wherever we are. But the fact is that we'll have much more uh, power and effectiveness doing it together corporately than we will individually. Um, John thirteen thirty four new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the the evangelism that we do corporately is just getting people to hang out with us socially, as a church, love one another, and to be in proactive unity, and they will be convinced that we indeed are the disciples of Christ and that He is real. John seventeen twenty one. That this is Jesus praying for the church, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe 
so the world may believe. And so our unity and our love is very, very powerful, way beyond what we understand and grasp in being a corporate witness to people who are looking for uh, hope, looking for joy. Uh, the average individual in our culture today have uh, all kinds of relationships that are struggling. And so when they hang out with us, then they observe the love and unity that we have. Number three, practice hospitality to people in JBC, to people you know and to those you don't know. So as we had our kids, uh, and they were young, we would almost every Sunday afternoon invite someone to our house for dinner. And we did that both as a uh, in obedience to the command to be hospitable, but primarily as a tool in raising our kids uh, to bring people, and they would eat with the kids, and then we would coach them before they came, and then we would have a chat after they left on how... They did talking, honoring uh, with their manners and every area of their life. We invited a lady to our home. Uh, her name was Mrs. Good. And uh, she showed up and nobody knew anything about her. She was basically homeless. And so we invited her for dinner and chatting with her, found out that she had no place to live. Um, she was traveling through. She ran out of money. And so we, she lived with us for almost a year until one of her daughters came from Florida and took her uh, back there with her. She was uh, legally blind, though she could get along. Uh, she could see and walk around, but she was legally blind, and uh, she was really, really grumpy. Uh, she was an older lady that her family had abandoned her, neglected her, and so she was pretty uh, uh, wounded. And so as a result of that, she was kind of on the grumpy side. And so she lived with us for about a year. The kids were young, little, growing up. And so we would constantly talk to them about how to treat Grandma Good. Uh, even though she was grumpy and, and cantankerous, that they would honor her. They would treat her well. Uh, they would look for opportunities to serve her and help her. And uh, looking back on it uh, with our kids, it was probably one of the wisest things we ever did. Uh, and our kids being uh, who they are today in the way of their character. Uh, we would pick up hitchhikers back then. It wasn't as risky as it is now. And then we would uh, uh, read Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. By this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So obviously, angels walk around and look like people. And one of the television programs that we, they could watch was Touched by an Angel. And so we would talk about that. And so I remember on numerous occasions, we would pick up a hitchhiker, drive him someplace, and the kids would be in the car. And we would talk to them about how to talk to this individual. And uh, one time we let them off and I don't remember which one of the kids it was, but they said, Dad, Dad, that was an angel. I said, how do you know? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that was an angel. Well, cool. Okay. Let's uh, see if we can do that again sometime. Romans 12, 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. First Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. So, Peter's going to say, the end is coming, so here's four things you better work on. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers the multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, probably a spiritual gift, employ it, use it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So Peter's saying four things. 
and included in that list of four was practice hospitality without complaint. Number four, hospitality is a method and tool that God blesses in our influencing others. So uh, it's God's idea. He commanded it, and he blesses it and uses it as a way of influencing people. Hospitality is pretty much a lost discipline in that very, very few people practice hospitality with any degree of regularity because uh, it's a bother, it's a pain, and we don't want people uh, making judgments about us on the basis of our home, uh, that it's messy and or not uh, super nice or whatever the reason is. Very, very few people practice hospitality today. Number five, when we use our home in a, in a God-ordained way, he blesses our home and those who live in it. And so this was one of the principles that Patty and I uh, adhered to and reminded ourselves of is that when we invite people regularly into our home for hospitality, it is a main, major bother to fix extra food, to talk to somebody you don't know that you haven't met before, to deal with eight kids that often are rude and, and misbehave. But we did it regularly, almost weekly, because we believed that when we used our home for the service of God, that he would bless our home and it would make a huge difference in the life of our kids and in our family. Second Kings 4.8, Elisha was a prophet, and uh, there was a famine that he basically brought on. And now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, and so be that when he comes to us, that he can turn in there. And then jumping to verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son at that season the next year, as Elisha had said to her. And Elisha blessed her with this because she hadn't had any children as a blessing for her hospitality. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead, and uh, he's gotten older, and he dies. So he entered, the sh- and entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. He went up and lay on the child, put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth. And he went up, stretched himself on him and the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called to Gehazi and said, call the Shunammite. So he called her and when she came into him, he said, take up your son. So again, this Shunammite woman was blessed by Elisha with the son and then blessed as he resurrected her son back to life after he died. Moving on to the eighth chapter, uh, Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life saying, Arise, go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. The Lord has called for a famine and it will even come on the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At the end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went out to appeal to the king for her house and for her field. Evidently, somebody probably had taken it over while she was gone. And so she's going to the king to see if she can get it back again. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. And he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who was dead. Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. That was uh, a coincidence, obviously. 
she showed up even as Gehazi was talking about it. Uh, and so you know uh, uh, that it wasn't a coincidence, but that God had ordained that. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left and the land until, until now. And so again, she's blessed. She not only gets her property back and her house back, but everything that she had given up for seven years, the king had that restored to her as well. And so that's Elisha. And so, I, excuse me, Elijah, or Elisha. And so here's another story about Elijah in 1 Kings 17.10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And she was going to get it. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. And uh, (laughs) that would be quite a greeting. Uh, Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. And afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. And so again, the hospitality that they uh, gave to Elisha and Elijah in both instances, God blessed uh, them as individuals. Six, pray for those who are in prison because of their faith in Jesus. Um, there's a number of publications that you can get. You can find out online. Uh, if you just um, go to Persecuted Church, something uh, similar to that online, you can get all kinds of current news and articles about the church around the world that's being persecuted and uh, they will have numerous prayer requests my uh, prayer app that i have on my ipad has categories one category is my church another category is my family another category are lost people another category are missionaries that we support uh, that i know another category are those that are being persecuted for their faith and so i have uh, each of those categories and so I pray through those each day. I pray for a different list. Uh, two of them I pray daily. That is for my family and for the ones that are lost. But once a week, I pray for a list of people that I've gotten found online that are in prison, being persecuted for their faith. I do that because it says uh, in Hebrews twelve three, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself are in the body. Number seven, be morally pure. Don't let the world define for you what that means. And so in our day and age, this has become a huge, huge issue. I see that uh, our government representatives are trying to pass a law uh, that basically would negate the First Amendment uh, of religious freedom and liberty, that it would, uh, churches would lose their taxes exempt status, their property exempt status, uh, property tax exempt status, if they were in any way to um, restrict 
any kind of homosexual behavior in their church or hiring or anything to do in their teaching, not even in their bylaws or in their standards, would that be allowed? And uh, so uh, the moral standards of today have gone down rapidly. And so uh, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I was having a discussion with somebody about the standards of the day and age. I said, do you see that word judge? God will judge. Uh, does that sound like something that you would like to have in your life? Well, no. I said that he will judge fornicators and adulterers. And do you know what fornication means? No? Well, here, let me give you about 25 verses. And if you read each one of them, you'll be able to come up with a very clear definition of what that means. And it covers just about everything uh, that our culture today says is okay. Uh, Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge, uh, urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. First Thessalonians 4:3. For this is the will of God. This is God's will for you that you your sanctification, that is, you become holy. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles or like the world who do not know God. Ephesians 5, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Immorality or any impurity. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. My wife will occasionally say, if I, when I take off with some guys hunting or fishing, she'll quote that verse to me. I say, Patrick, come on now. Which are not fitting, but rather giving a thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so that's a fairly strong statement. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So, <clears throat> I had a chat with an individual who said, so, what's wrong with living together before you're married? I said, well, it's not God's will. It's clearly commanded in Scripture that that's not what we ought to do. Well, show it to me. Well, okay, you want one verse or a hundred? I'll just start out with some basic stuff. 1 Corinthians 7.1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, each woman is to have her own husband. And so it's pretty clear there that if you're not married, don't even touch her. Uh, that is way beyond what we would consider uh, standard for our day and age. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
Um, so, but our, our culture doesn't operate that way at all. 2 Timothy 2.20, In a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor, some to dishonor. Some to honor, some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, these things is moral purity, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful, useful, useful to the master, as opposed to useless. Useful to the master is opposed good for nothing, worthless. Prepared for every good work, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So whenever I, a thought pops into my head that is even close to being immoral, I immediately start meditating on this verse. If a man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master. That's what I want. I want more uh, responsibility, more opportunities from God to serve. And so moral purity is a basic requirement. God will not use an unclean vessel to do his work. And so it all depends on what your desire is, and mine is to do the work, the work of God, the will of God, and to bear much fruit. Number seven, don't love the world, the stuff in it, or money. Learn the power of being content, and God will meet your needs. Don't love the world, it's idolatry. The stuff in it or money. So you heard the story about my fishing trip and a $400 electric trolling motor with an autopilot on it and a remote control device on it got busted off my uh, boat and fell to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, ocean, the bottom of the uh, Detroit Lake. So one of the things that determines whether you love what you own is how you react when it breaks, stolen, or uh, falls to the bottom of Detroit Lake. And so when it went over the side, uh, first words out of my mouth was, oh, crap. <laughs> then I said, I didn't like that motor anyway. <laughs> and I smiled. And I said, thank you, Lord. I'm not sure exactly why you allowed that to happen, but I'm going to learn whatever lesson you have for me, and I'm for sure not going to fuss about it. <clears throat> Hebrews 13:5. make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so people quote uh, verses in the Bible where it says that God will meet our needs. That only applies to people who are content, who don't love the world. If you're not content, if you love the world, you cannot count on the verse where God says, I'll meet your needs. 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is a really strong statement. The love of the Father is not in him. That means I don't love God if I love the world. 
For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Philippians 4.14, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So this is sort of a thank you letter that Paul's sending to the church for supporting him in his missionary work. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. We have an account in heaven. And everything that we give to God's work goes into that account. Uh, I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, the fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So that verse applies only if the rest of those verses apply. Number nine, don't be afraid, worry, or fret. God will take care of you. So anxiety ought not to be part of a believer's life. And if you get uh, anxious, you worry, you fret about things in your life, you ought to make it a goal to conquer that because the command is clear. Uh, be anxious for nothing. Hebrews thirteen six. so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Matthew ten twenty nine. are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The number of my hairs changes every day. And God knows what that number is, and he takes care of me. Number 10, look around and find good models, examples, and counselors on how to live in a way that pleases God. So the basic principle is we can read in the Bible how to live the Christian life, but we won't fully grasp it until we see it lived out. We won't fully grasp the truth of living the Christian life until we see somebody that's Jesus in the flesh, as it were, living uh, his principles. And uh, so uh, one of the things that with kids, they tend to cave to peer pressure. And the best way to counteract that is to teach them over and over again, look for people that are good models that you can copy, that you can model. Um, Somebody said to me, I don't want to put you on a pedestal. I said, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, I mean, you're not saying I'm God, are you? No, 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 I'm not saying that. So what do you mean not put me on a pedestal? Well, I'm not sure what I mean. Uh, You ought to have people in your life that you can say, I'm going to live the way they live. You ought to have people in your life and you can say, I'm going to have a marriage like they have. I'm going to raise my kids the way they do. I'm going to manage my money the way they do. I'm going to follow Jesus the way they do. You ought to have people like that in your life. And one of the admonitions to pastors is that you ought to be those kinds of people. And any pastor that really is doing what he ought to do ought to be able to say with confidence, if you want a good marriage, do it the way I do it. If you want to uh, walk with Jesus, do it the way I do it. Uh, and if uh, I, I say pastors all the time, if you can't say that with confidence, then fix whatever is a problem in your life so that you can. But that's a clear command that pastors have been given. 
Um, Hebrews 13, 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Do what they do. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Proving to be examples to the flock. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example. Paul says that. Follow my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1.7, so that you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Proverbs 15.22, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And so the principle is uh, clear. We can say, well, I don't want to... uh, follow a person you're not following them like you would jesus but you have to have examples models people that you emulate that you uh, think about okay what would they do and then uh, as you do that hopefully they'll stay ahead of you if they don't then shift models so you've always got somebody in your life that you can ask the question what would they do how would they act what would they do in this situation So you have those living examples in your life. Number 11, there are a lot of weird teachings around and they will increase. Don't be naive, foolish, or gullible. And it's increasing dramatically. And the problem now is because with the internet, people can teach and put it on YouTube. They can put it on the internet and people watch it. And they tend to believe that whatever's on the internet is true, whatever's on YouTube is true, when in fact most of it isn't at all. Uh, And so those who know their Bible well and read it regularly, faithfully, uh, won't be taken in. Hebrews 13, 9 through 13, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. 1 John 4, 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Proverbs fourteen fifteen. the naive believe everything. The sensible man considers his steps. Jeremiah 29, 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Matthew 24, 4 through 5, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ and will will mislead many. So the key is read the Bible every day and you will, you will know. You might not be able to put your finger on what's not right, but there'll be this dissonance inside of you in your spirit. Uh, uh, you'll just have this sense that this isn't right as you read the word of God faithfully. 13, be thankful for everything all the time. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, I turned, took two pages there at once. Think about, anticipate, and long for Jesus to come. So with a couple of exceptions, most of us are pretty close to stepping into glory. Some closer than others. When's your birthday, Ted? When was your birthday? 
yesterday, and you were what, 71? Oh, man, you're close. <laughs> Hebrews 13, 14, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We're seeking the city which is to come. How do you seek it? There's nothing I can do to make it get closer. Uh, you just wish it were here. You're looking forward to the day. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly, eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think often about what it's going to feel like, look like. I, I, uh, you know, the thing I'm anticipating most is I'm constantly looking for stuff that I can't remember where I put it. And, uh, and I think... When I get into heaven and I get my glorified body, in that instant I'm going to have a mind like Jesus and I'm going to be able to think with like an infinite thought and I'm going to be able to remember everything. That should, that's just going to take a second. I wonder how that's all of a sudden going to feel when I just realize I can think, really think. That's going to be so cool. 13, be thankful for everything all the time. This is a really, really super important discipline if you want to be a witness for Jesus, if you want to attract people to him. You do that by your joy, by your peace, by your enthusiasm. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually, continually, that means all the time, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Why is the word sacrifice used? Uh, it's not particularly easy. A sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Number 14, do good deeds for others, both saved and lost, every chance you get. This is very, very powerful in the form of influencing people for Christ. You pray for lost people, you do things with them socially, you look for an opportunity to meet a need in their life. Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect doing good, sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Titus 2, 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds, good deeds. Titus 2, 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 3, 8, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently. Paul's talking to Titus, a pastor. He said, preach this so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Titus 3.14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Number 15, JBC is a local church, a body of Christ, the various parts of the body uh, the Holy Spirit is working in and using in the lives of the rest of the body. So this is a super important doctrine in the New Testament uh, especially taught by the Apostle Paul. We are a church family, and each of us are like a part of a body. Some of you are noses, some of you are ears, some of you are eyes, some of you are livers, but we all are part of the body, and we contribute to each other's health. I can listen, you can listen to Chuck Swindoll on the radio, or John MacArthur, or whoever your favorite radio or podcast preacher is, but you will get more from myself and from Mike than you will them, not because we are as good, but because we're the body and God will work in and through us in the body more than he will outside our church family. And so a commitment level that we have to our church is a key part of our personal growth 
and God's blessing in our life. Romans 12, 4, just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. 16, God will prompt the leaders of JBC on what he wants the church to do. And unless you have a good reason not to, it is good to follow the leading of the leaders so that there is good unity in the church. So unity is not the absence of conflict. Unity is proactive in that there's a oneness, uh, a proactive pursuing the same vision, the same goals together. And when we do that as a church, you are blessed and our church is blessed. And so if we were to say, okay, what is my job from God? Obviously, one is to teach the Bible. And another one uh, in 1 Peter 5 is to lead uh, and to cast vision. So Hebrews thirteen seven, obey your leaders. Now, he's not talking here about buy a Ford, not a Chevy. Uh He's not talking about stuff that you are going to plan. He's talking about in the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And so uh, when I work with pastors and mentor and coach them, I say, I can grade you by visiting your church and seeing how much unity there is. Nothing really... Um, grades a pastor on his pastoring as much as the unity of the church that he's leading. That's your first responsibility as a pastor is to lead in such a way that there's unity and oneness in the body of Christ because God blesses unity and oneness. Not absence of conflict, but the presence of proactive pursuing together with one heart and mind a common vision and goal. And so... Occasionally someone makes that difficult because they just have this sort of thought is, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, you're praying for 100,000, I'm going to pray for 90. You're praying for 100,000, I'm going to pray for 120. You're going to do it this way, I'm going to do it this way. And, you know, it's not a problem other than the fact that if that mindset exists, you won't be blessed by God as you don't pursue unity with the body and it affects the unity that we all corporately experience as the body when there's uh, not a proactive unity. And so the goal is that godly leadership would discern from God, what do you want us to do, Lord? And communicate that clearly and then everybody uh, works together for whatever that goal is. And so we have some things that we do as a church. Um, We have homeland missions. We have special offerings. uh, We have building programs. And there's always somebody who wants to do it different. And, uh, you know, I can appreciate their creativity, but the problem is if we all do that same thing, then there is zero unity in the body of Christ. And so unity depends on leadership, and it also depends on uh, submissive following. 17, the more you pray for Pastor Mike and I, the better we will preach and lead. The church is a body and the parts are in a symbiotic relationship by God's design. There's certain things that I do, certain things that you do, and together we grow as we have this oneness and this unity. 
And so we ask, what is your responsibility in the body? One of the major ones that's repeated uh, over and over in Scripture is to pray for your leaders. A major thing you pray for is the quality of their preaching. Uh, You pray for their protection. Uh, I used to preach a sermon every year, the Sunday after my birthday. I think I did it 20 years in a row, and it was on the seven things that you can pray for me in regards. They all started with P. Preaching, person, protection. Uh, anyway, some of you probably remember because I preached it so many times. Most people didn't remember that I'd preached it ever before, so it was good that I kept on preaching it. Hebrews thirteen eighteen through 19, pray for us. Number 18, my prayers for you are very powerful by God's design. So Jesus in John 17, that's not in your notes, he prays for his disciples just prior to getting crucified. And he says, Father, I don't pray for the world. I simply pray for those whom you've given me. I pray for those whom you've given me. And so I have jurisdiction, as it were, uh, authority, power from God to intercede for certain people. The highest one would be my family. The second would be my church family, whom he's made me a pastor of. And so I see that as my primary responsibility now Uh, in my ministry at the age that I am, is to pray for everybody in the church every week for whatever problems that you have, whether you communicate them or whether I observe them. And so if I observe that you're lukewarm, I'm going to pray that God uh, smacks you good and gets your attention and that you stop that. Uh, But I'm going to pray for you faithfully, regularly. Uh, Hebrews 13, here's the his prayer. Now, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will. That's a great little prayer right there. Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 19. Be teachable from Pastor Mike and I. Understand that God is going to teach you more through those in this body than he will from anyone else. If you pay attention, if you're teachable, if you're saying to God, Lord, teach me, teach me. Use my church family, use those that you have ordained to be the teachers and preachers to communicate your truth to me. Hebrews 13, 22, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Number 20, be friendly to the people in JBC. Greet, 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 greet some more. I said uh, uh, a statement a minute ago that was not accurate. And that was that the most often given one another in command in Scripture was to encourage one another. A second most often given is greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Paul ends every one of his letters with that admonition. So we'll just say a holy handshake or a hug. Hebrews 13, 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen.